0: We're in 1 John again today, and if you go back a couple of weeks in 1 John 3, he said, don't be surprised if people in opposition to the gospel hate you. And again, I want to ask the question, why would people hate you for being a Christian? And some would say, well, obviously it's because you're judgmental, you're mean, you're unloving, you're hypocritical, narrow-minded, and just generally you're jerks. And I suppose that's true on occasion. You can find those examples, but most people would prefer, and listen to these qualifiers, a consistent practicing Christian as a neighbor than a consistent practicing atheist. Chesterton wrote, I think the most practical and important thing about a person is his view of the universe, his worldview. For a landlady considering a lodger, someone to rent a room to, it's important to know his income, but still more important to know his worldview. I think the question is not whether their theory of the cosmos affects him, but whether in the long run anything else affects him So worldview is not what you look at, but what you look through. It's how you see the world, and how you see the world is how you practically are going to live in the world. So if the world were coming to an end, if some dystopian sci-fi scenario actually came to life in Wichita, you would certainly prefer to have a practicing Christian as a neighbor than someone with an alternative worldview. So what's important, again, is that qualifier, practicing Christian. Peter wrote this in first in, in chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. A meddler is a busybody. Just a generally annoying, divisive person. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God you bear that name. Peter goes from one extreme to the other to cover all possibilities. Murderer all the way to meddler. And if you suffer because of your own foolish or sinful choices, anywhere on that spectrum, that's on you. But he's saying if you suffer because of the name of Christ, well, good for you. And it's literally good for you. You're blessed, Peter wrote. And it's not just good for you, but it's good for everyone around you who is experiencing the love and the grace and the forgiveness that you extend them. Self-practicing Christians make the best neighbors and citizens, and historically they do. Why would anyone hate them? It's a good question. Let's go to Jesus in John 10 for a clue. Verse 31, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. You, being a man, make yourself God. So there it is. We're okay with the good works of Jesus, just not the reason behind the good works. They point to his claims of divinity. He does what he does because of who he is. And that's why Christians might be hated. When we seek to include people in our lives, all kinds of people. When we seek to love others regardless of who they are, that's as fine as far as it goes. But if we then confess the exclusive claims of Christ, that he's Lord of heaven and earth and humans, that his will alone brings human good. To live outside of his will is to live in sin, to walk away from life itself. Then we're not going to be hated because of the results of making Jesus Lord, which is going to be to include people in our lives and serve them sacrificially. But we'll be hated because of the implications of that life. Jesus is Lord, and anyone who doesn't submit to his lordship is literally on a dead end path. Let's learn again from the Lord in John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the middle. So imagine a scenario. All these men are standing around, and here's this woman standing in shame. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone, such women, so what do you say? And they asked us to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So these are just bad people. And Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he was writing or why. Lots of speculations. And then they persisted in questioning him. So he stood up and said to them, He took control of the narrative. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone. Then he stoops down and starts writing on the ground again, and they all slither away. And only he was left with the woman in the center. And he said, Woman, were are your con- condemners? And, and has no one left to condemn you? She said, No one. He said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. So what do you see here in the Lord Jesus? You don't see a blanket acceptance of the woman's sin, but you see forgiveness. And what she most needed was forgiveness. Her largest problem was not that she was being publicly shamed or that she was not accepted as wrong and as hard as those were. Her her largest problem was her sin. And it didn't matter the most to Jesus in that moment what had happened to her in the past to bring her to that point. It didn't matter most what someone might have done to her to bring her to that point. Those are relevant to her life. But for her, and Jesus knew that, her biggest problem was her sin. And she didn't most need for him to affirm her. She most needed to forgive her. And that's what the words, neither do I condemn you, mean. It didn't mean I don't condemn your lifestyle. He certainly did. Because he said, go and stop sinning. This is what love for this woman looked like as revealed by the Lord himself. So forgiveness leading to acceptance and a call to stop sinning. Many in the world are going to find this kind of acceptance unacceptable. But anything else is not really love at all. In John's letter, he gives us the three tests of certainty over and over. He gives us the doctrinal test, the truth test, who is Jesus, the moral test, the holiness test. Do our lives look more and more like Christ? And then the social test, or the love test, is our relationship with God showing up in how we treat people? And these are how we grow in certainty of the gospel. So we're in chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. He's going to combine the truth test and the love test to show how they work in symbiotic relationship, who Jesus is, and then living like Jesus did in our everyday lives. These things impact our certainty. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another because love... Is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is who Jesus is. He is God incarnate paying for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. So God is love. His love was revealed in the coming of Christ. While we were still sinners, Paul wrote, Christ died for us. Since God loved us this way, we're to love others in the same way. And there are a ton of manifestations of God's love for us in history and, and even just in our daily lives. But the greatest example or manifestation of God's love is the gift of his son on the cross and John gave us this truth in his gospel John 3 16 and he gave it to us twice in this paragraph the coming of Christ is the concrete historical revelation of the love of God and we see love defined here as seeking the good of others at great personal cost no greater example of love has ever been given in a biblical theodicy which is the the Defense of God's existence and goodness and power in the face of human suffering. That's what theodicy means. There are seven major themes or motifs. This is the greatest one. God, are you there? Are you good? Are you powerful? Why don't you do something about this suffering, my suffering? And one of the biblical answers, a key one is, I have done something. Christ has come. I will do something. Christ will return Christ is a revelation of the kindness and goodness of God. And the love of God in Christ assures us of God's love for us, and then it lays out the obligation of our love for others. And so in between the Advents, the coming of Christ and the return of Christ, which we celebrate during Advent season, God's love is seen partially but powerfully through our love for one another. So in his gospel, in Chapter 1, verse 18, John wrote, no one has ever seen God. And it's identical to what he wrote here in verse 12. And so the question that he's presenting is, look, no one's ever seen God, so how can God be made known? Well, Jesus has made him known. He's a revelation of the goodness and kindness and love of God. And that's amazing. And then to add to our astonishment, John goes on and says, yeah, and if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. A whole other level of God's love is being revealed to the world. In the next few verses, John's going to combine the truth and the love test again. And this gets at that idea that the world in opposition to God is okay with love as long as we get to define it, as long as it's nonspecific and generic. Many people want a kind of God who's like a grandpa, who's, C.S. Lewis said, their primary goal is at the end a good time was had by all. He's not that God. Or the many moms and dads who say to their children, all I ever wanted for you was you to be happy and that's really true to a degree and it's really not true at all it's untrue when happiness is defined as right now it's true when happiness is defined as long-term this life and beyond so I was reading about Sam Bankman this his tragic um, life and his tragic upbringing, up- upbringing very very um, well-positioned parents and I'm certain that his parents would say they wanted him to be happy. That was their goal for him. The problem is they raised him with a worldview that put himself at the center of the world, and now after just a few years of fame and luxury living and ripping off a lot of people, at age 31 he's probably going to spend the rest of his earthly life in a cell. In other words, he's going to be enormously unhappy for the rest of his life. And it's directly related to his self-directed pursuit of personal happiness and he was raised on altruism that okay go get as rich as you can to help a lot of people funny thing is is that that's kind of the stated goal but the real goal is and i really want to get mine in the process it's it's still disguised selfishness and selfishness is always a failed method for personal happiness and so god is after our real happiness not our passing and ultimately empty versions of it so the gospel makes love, god's love very specific Here's what love looks like. And his goal for us is also very specific. Be conformed to the image of Christ and then then reveal his love to other people. And so then what about our sins? Well, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So what does that say about them? Well, that says they're bad. They're unacceptable. They're a barrier to happiness and relationship with God. And so Jesus said to the woman trapped in her sins, go and sin no more. The love of God in Christ is tied to the truth of who Christ is, and they can't be separated. So let's look at the ways that John speaks to our certainty as we go on in this passage. Our certainty of who God is and our relationship with him is tied to understanding who Jesus is and then our responsibility to love one another. And as we continually grow in our understanding and our application of God's love, then we're going to grow in our certainty. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. And we have seen and we testified that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he is in God. There's that truth test. Who is Jesus? And we've come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this love is made complete with us so we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. So we don't fear are we in or out. We know who Jesus is. We're living imperfectly but directional lives of of showing love for other people and our confidence grows, our certainty grows. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So don't get me wrong. If you've trusted Christ, you are certainly not going to face eternal judgment. But your own confidence in that, your own growth in certainty is directly tied to how we respond to God and how we respond to people. The one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. So as we believe that Jesus is a revelation of the love of God and we've put our faith in him alone, as we live in growing fashion in line with that love, we have confidence. This love drives out fear, specifically fear of God's judgment. And we can be certain of our acceptance by God now and into eternity. And he finishes with a biblical truism. You say you love the invisible God, well then love the visible people all around you. And this really ought to be common sense. You would think it's common sense. But he's talking to the people in that time who were theological innovators, they were inventing their own religions, and they were saying, yeah, you can love God, and you can ignore or mistreat the people around you. And John says, nonsense. And this is a paraphrase, verse 21. I've got this right from the top. The one who loves God must love his brother or sister. So there's a simple test. Do you love the people around you? lovable or unlovable do you love him no then you don't love God and it's simple but it's enormously difficult to pull off it's simple but not easy so what does it look like to love others and since this is of bottom line importance it is the theme John's theme is certainty and certainty is revealed as you is grows as you understand God's love for you and then reveal that love to others so we need some clarity what does it really look like to love people And if you were to ask different people, what's gravity? One person more scientifically minded would say gravity is a force of attraction between things with mass. You ask the next person, they say, that's why things fall down and not up. Okay, but what is gravity? No one really knows. And if you ask 100 people what love is, you'll get about 100 or 120 definitions. Some of them are going to be theoretical, some experiential, some are going to be cliche. So for the the atheist, the materialist, love is a complex chemical reaction in the human brain. Now, let him try that with his wife on Valentine's Day and see how that, how that works out. Love is, or let him actually try to live consistently with it like that when he looks at his children. He can't. Love is feeling good, happy, excited. Love is, is, is accepting me. That's the most common definition now, but that, of course, has its limits. If you love me, you'll accept me. Where does that How far does that go? Do I accept you if you're, you know, killing people around me? So there's limits. How do we as followers of Christ let Scripture tell us what love is and then how do we apply it to other people consistently? Well, we have a clue. John told us here in this chapter, God is love. Love is an attribute or an inherent aspect of who God is. And in the Bible, we see that it's revealed in the fact that God eternally gives of himself to others over and over God is love, and then God expresses his love through giving, giving, giving. Even in the Trinity, the triune God, three persons and one being, Father, Son, Spirit, there's self-giving between this amazing reality of who is our God. No human religion has this complex and beautiful reality, love within the Trinity. Jesus said in John 17, 24, My glory which you've given me in your love for me before the foundation of the cosmos. 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we love God, but He loved us and then gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, the Son of God loved me, and how did He show His love? He gave Himself for me. So love's an attribute of God that humans can experience and share, but to describe love as anything other than self-giving for the good of others is described something other than biblical love. And I, th- and I think a lot about the principle we discussed here before, being well-differentiated people, and it sounds complicated, but it's really not. It's, again, the idea of being connected, like cells in a heart are connected, but being autonomous. Cells in a heart don't lose their distinction, or the heart becomes diseased. And so we're connected. Christy and I are connected people, but we're autonomous. We are connected to one another, committed to one another. My wife and I, but we ultimately are autonomous people who owe our allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And so we choose to connect with others for their own good, but we remain our unique selves, and we are ultimately responsible to obey God and how we love others. Because there's certain ways of giving others what they want or demand that's not good for them, it's not love, and it's certainly not obedience. So to accept sin in others is not love. But we're not to be harsh with people or play the role of the junior holy spirit with people we're to love the sinner not the sin that's cliche but it actually happens to be true and so we're to ask the hard question what's the right thing to do here in this relationship not the wrong question which what'll happen if i do it love for humans can't come untethered from the lordship of jesus so in galatians 1 10 paul said am i now trying to win the approval of men or of god if i'm trying to please people i'm no longer a servant of christ so we are to give our lives away for others within the parameters of what does it mean to be faithful to God? So love begins with God. It's seen in Scripture as self-giving in its definition, but it's not giving what people demand, but giving people what they need. And how do we pull this off? Very, it's very difficult. It's hard to figure out. We've got a clear direction on which on we're where to head. We know the goal, but that path can be complicated. So it's going to be a life of direction, not perfection. Love is perfect in God, not in us. And in this one specific moment, in this action, you may be spot on. That might be exactly what love needs to do. But you say, yeah, but my motive wasn't pure. Well, that's that's how it's going to be. We're going to always have mixed motives. Our motives are never going to be pure. So even though we pay attention to our hearts, we pay attention to our motives, we don't get overly immersed in motive evaluation. That can be quicksand talking to some friends this morning and they're trying to teach their kids you don't wait till you you feel sorry to say you're sorry you know go say you're sorry was that wrong say you're sorry hopefully the feelings will follow along behind so our motives are going to mixed be mixed at best and we want to ask God to change our hearts but what the Bible clearly defines as love is is self-giving for the good of others so we generally know what to do with our lives we are to go lay them down for others and so we can measure, am I making life about me right now? Yes, I'm heading the wrong direction. We're not going to lay down our lives as an atonement for the sins of others. Jesus alone did that. But we're to lay down our lives for the good of others. And that is a really high bar, super high bar. The cross as the model for human ethics. Partially shows how sinful we still are, how much we need Jesus. I mean, who doesn't fall short of that standard? But it's also not just, okay, you fall short, you still need Jesus, but it's also, that's the direction to head. Paul said, aim for perfection. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father's in heaven. So we have a perfect direction, even though we're not going to be perfect in every action. And we can make a good start on this. I told Rodney this week, I said, I'll be 65 in December, and I'm running out of time. I've got, I've got to get this love for other people thing figured out. I'm running out of time. And, and we were laughing about it, but... But we want to grow. We, we have a settled direction and we're not doing it in perfection. So what does it look like? So we're going to finish with a look at Philippians 2, which is a really important passage where Paul combines the love of God revealed on the cross of Christ with how we're to express this in our lives. And if you haven't studied this passage or learned this passage, it would be a really important one to, to immerse into your heart and soul. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's the goal. That's the bar, very high bar. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So there's the reality of who Christ is, the truth test, and then it's it's the love test. We're to express that kind of love to others. Selfish ambition is just what it sounds like, putting self first in words, thoughts, and actions. Empty conceit is literally empty glory. Whenever I'm at the center of my heart and life versus the Lord who is the Lord of glory, it's empty glory. It's vain glory. Don't live like that. Paul said, instead live in humility, and humility at its essence is our dependence, our understanding of our dependence on God. Who is God? Who are you? Now see the world through that lens, and when you look through the lens of humility, who is God and who am I, then you can see yourself and others more clearly and how to respond to them. It doesn't make it easy, but it does help it get clearer, and when Paul wrote this and when John wrote his letter, people outside the church totally misunderstood what Christians meant by humility. They thought it was this groveling, cringing, you know, yeah, whatever, whatever. You know, Marty McFly, if you remember the Back to the Future. It's just sort of pathetic, and it's far from that. Philosophers in the centuries to come have said things like this pale, weak Galilean. Why would anybody follow him? And they completely misunderstand what humility is. Humility is controlled strength. He certainly wasn't pale like the silly pictures of I him, and Jesus spent his days outdoors, and he certainly wasn't weak. Those philosophers who mocked him would have been as speechless in his strong presence as the rulers of his day were, and every knee will bow before his glory someday. Christ allowed himself to be killed. He had a choice. He chose the glory of the Father, the good of others, and the, and the writer of Hebrews says he, he went to the cross for the joy, his own joy set before him. So humility is living with clarity. We are created. God is creator. As his creation, we're to use whatever strength we've been given for the good of others. We're not to put self first. That's empty. And when someone dares treat us like servants, we don't pout and get petty. Yesterday I was at Sam's and a lady that worked there scolded me for something. I'm still not qu- quite sure what she scolded me for. <laughs> and, um, and she was unhappy and, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and I felt myself start, you know, like that and i just said sorry i mean and as i'm driving away frustrated i'm like how dare she treat me a servant of christ like i'm a servant (laughs) and jesus showed us how to live this way consider others more significant means do what jesus said is to be our priority what we call the golden rule do to others as you have them do to you paul said we're to have the mind of christ in us and this means we're to see the world how he sees it it's not about me Love is about self-giving to others. How do we give our life away for the others? We do this under the lordship of Jesus. So faithfulness to Jesus forms the parameters for how we love one another. There aren't easy answers for what it looks like to love others as Christ would have us love them. It's complicated. I spent a couple of um, really restless nights and troubled days recently trying to figure out what does love look like in this relationship in my life? I mean, very troubled. And as I tried to figure it out and prayed and and reined in my emotions, I look back and I got some things right. I got some things really wrong in the process. You say, well, this isn't helpful. You're saying it's fuzzy. It's not fuzzy at all. We have a really clear vector on what direction to head. It's right there. That's clear. We're to measure our love for others by looking at Christ on the cross. That provides all the clarity we need in terms of direction. But as we seek to love others like that, we're going to get some things wrong. We're going to get some things right. That's why the New Testament's full of keep forgiving one another. Because you're not going to get this perfect. What's different between us and, and those who don't know Christ or the world apart from the gospel is they don't even have any idea which direction to head. They don't even have a vector. They're just they're wandering around. They're steering their, their ship by the bow of their ship. We, we have a, a north star. We know the direction to head. And so I can tell, I can tell when I'm not heading that direction. It's not that hard to figure out. We're not guessing on what love is. We're not basing our direction on our own emotions or what others might demand from us. We have a settled direction, though we don't travel that direction with perfection. But as we head that direction, and what we, we started, John, with it mess up, fess up, move on, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. As we mess up, we fess up, we move on, and we head that way, then we're going to increase our certainty over time. God's glory will be manifest through us, and others are going to be blessed in the process. So it's really not fuzzy. It's challenging to figure out, but it's not fuzzy. We have great clarity. Measure your life by the cross of Christ. There God showed his love for you. Measure your love for others by the cross of Christ. That's how God wants you to show his love to others. And then when you mess up, you fess up, and you get back onto that direction. Because as you keep heading that direction, you're going to increase your certainty, you're going to manifest the glory of God, and you're going to do good for others, and you're going to increase your own joy. It's win, 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 win. Let's pray together. You talk to God, listen to God, and then we're going to worship God together some more.